Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's an immense honor and pleasure to have at Wilson College tonight the great sculptor, Sir Anthony Caro, and his friend, Tim Marlowe, director of exhibitions at White Cube Gallery and a well-known arts broadcaster and writer. Sir Anthony Caro is someone who, whether we know it or not, most of us here think about every day of our lives because we go up and down the marble hall all the time where his sculpture sits. Double half, the table bronze made between 1982 and 1983, was given to the college in 1988. This wonderful gift, the central treasure of our modern art collection, came out of a friendship between Sir Anthony and his wife Sheila Gerling and Margaret and Bill Hoffenberg. Bill Hoffenberg was then president of the college and was helped on its way by the then chair of the art subcommittee, Hildegard Nicholas. Sir Anthony and Lady Caro loaned the college a large number of paintings from their personal collection in 1987. This, incidentally, just to set it in context, was also the year that Sir Anthony was knighted, the year when he was making the mighty After Olympia sculpture and the Chicago Fugue sculpture, and, as usual, running the Triangle Workshop he founded in 1982 at Pine Plains, New York. Early in 1988, the year that we received double half, the college held a show of the loaned pictures and ran a related lecture series by Sir Anthony, the art critic Tim Hilton, the collector Robert Loder, and David Elliott, then director of Oxford's Museum of Modern Art. Sir Anthony was made an honorary fellow of Wolfson in 1991. The pictures went back to him in 1996, and double half is with us forever. So it is with a feeling of ties renewed and admiring recognition that we welcome him back to the college today to be in conversation with Tim Marlowe. Please make them both very welcome. Um, we could start in so many places, Tony, but why don't we start, as Hermione's just mentioned, triangle workshops. It, it, it always triggers a fascinating area, I think, for you, which is education, um, as we are in an illustrious educational in institution. Um, at what point in your own... Is that a good idea? <laughs> I love the fact it's brazen. We, we, we're open about it. It's, it's, it's medicinal. It's the only way we can get through each other's company. At what, at what point in your own education did you realise that you wanted to become an artist? But were you a school kid? I've never asked you this, actually. But were you, was it when you were at school or was it when you were at university? No, I, I wanted to be an artist when I was... Uh, well, my father wanted me to be a, a stockbroker because he was one, and I thought it was a horrible idea. And so he said, what are you going to do? Uh, and I hadn't the faintest idea. Um, I, I mean, we, we looked at all sorts of possibilities, like even being a radio announcer, because I liked um, reading aloud. I mean, things that were completely impossible. Finally... He said, well, you like, you like drawing, better go and be an architect. So I went to an architect's office, and um, I hated it. Um, and I used to go to the lavatory and read a book. Um, 
so he said, well, you better be an engineer. So I studied engineering. And finally, you know, I kept on, I sort of knew that I wanted to be an artist, and I kept on saying, I really do want to be an artist. And um, my father said, well, you're going to have a miserable life, you know. You're never going to be able to afford to have children or to uh, do what you want. Um, you know, you're going to be a dilettante. Um, and I said, oh, well, I would still want to do it. So he said, well, I do know somebody who knows somebody else who is an art teacher. And it happened to be a Mr. Marsden who taught at St. Martin's. So he went to see Mr. Marsden. And Mr. Marsden and my father and I got into a taxi. And we went to look at a sculpture that I'd made, or a portrait. And Mr. Marsden came away and he said to my father, um, your son's never going to be any good. Um, and my father was delighted. <laughs> and did, so, did, you suspect, did you suspect collusion? No, no collusion. My father took out a nice, crisp, white five-pound note and said, thank you very much, here's your fee. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, now you see, you should come into my office and you could afford to have your work cast in bronze and uh, you could have a wife and family, and it's all going to be all right. And I didn't say anything, but I said, no, screw that, I'm going, to, I'm going to be an artist. And I think, actually, from that moment, I, um, I thought I've got to justify this. I, I can't, you know, my father's been so good to me, I, I really can't um, be a dilettante. I've got, to, I've got to work hard. What did he make of your success? No, he died before, unfortunately. I mean, he, he, he lived... Um, well, he died, he was about 65, and he died um, before I'd really got going at all. But he did support me, and he supported my, um, my endeavour to be an artist very, very, very strongly, and I'm very grateful to him for that. My mother um, lived to a 100, and... Um, she liked my success, and when I became um, a sir, she said to Sheila, you know, I ought to be Lady Cario, not you. <laughs> <laughs> so, although it's often been, um, Henry Moore has oft, uh, often been described as a father figure to you, in a sense, th that resonates in, in, in a number of ways, does it? You, you, that still holds true. Do you, feel, do you still feel that now? No, it's just history, history. I mean, I worked for Henry, and he was very good to me, and um, we really had good communication. We talked about art. He taught me an immense amount simply by talking about art and seeing how a studio works, borrowing his books every night. I used to take a different book out of his library and look at it, and, uh, you know, constantly looking at his, at his um, notebooks and things. And I would go into, I'd drive him into London from Much Haddam, <clears throat> and I would go and draw at the Royal Academy Schools. I never understood drawing at all because uh, it was taught by painters, and they, they said, draw like iron. Well, a, a sculptor can't draw like iron. There's no, it, you flood the light across with, a, with an iron. And, and he was trying to show the form, and he taught me how to do it. And uh, I would, next day... We, I mean, I'd drive him back in the evening. We'd talk about what 
what he'd done. He'd been to the National Gallery. He said there was a wonderful painting by Velasquez. Which do you like best? Do you like Velasquez or Tintoretto? I mean, it was a great conversation. It was great talking to him. It was very open. And um, the next day, he'd look at my drawings, and he'd say... Uh, Where's the light coming from? And um, that side should be dark. And I've got a lot of drawings that I've made. Uh, he draws on the side saying, no, this is how it should be. This should be bigger because it's closer to you and so on. So I learned a lot from him. He really was a father, father in uh, sculpture for me. And, of course, David Smith also, but in a totally different way. Because when I went to America and uh, I got to know David... Um, he was competitive. He was not a father. He was a... Elder brother. No, a fighter, yes, yes, more or less. Yes. When you went to America in 1959, early 60, 1960, <coughs> um, before you went, you were working, you were using plaster and clay and casting in bronze, which has connections with what Moore was doing. We might discuss a little, little later why it wasn't exactly the same. But there's an element of, of being connected to that. Um, so was the idea of going to America in a way to escape British tradition or to, to look further afield, but also to try and break free from the shackles of Moore? Is that too simple a way of describing it, or was there a sense of needing to do that? No, I don't think I was breaking away from the shackles of Moore because I think I did that when I left Moore and started to look at Picasso. Um, but I was looking at Picasso, Du Buffet, um, de Kooning... Uh, Francis Bacon, you know, that, it was a long way from Henry Moore, that. Yeah. Um, but at that time, there was this, the, the English tradition was the geometry of fear. And um, I wasn't very interested in that, or not very, I mean, a little affected by it, but not much. And I had met, um, I had gone in for this uh, Ford English-speaking union travel grant. And um, this group of people around the table started asking me questions and I made a hash of it and so when I got back Sheila said how did it go I said it was rotten I didn't, didn't do the right thing at all so she said well what did he say this man who was the difficult one he said he asked me this you know why did I want to go what, you know, why do I want to go there not to Italy and so on so on so Okay, she said, uh, I'll be him and you be you. And so we practiced this. And I went up for it next year and he asked the same questions. <laughs> so I was word perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, what was your answer to why you wanted to go well, to Well, it was the place where it was all happening. It was the beginning of the... But your uh, Paris, generation. Well, Paris was... Uh, people of my age, like Tapius or Chilida, um, were sort of gravitated to Paris very much. Um, so it really wasn't my generation, but my feelings were that the, this was the place that things were happening. Um, and there were things happening in Paris, but they were finishing. Uh, and in New York, um, it was just... Well, it was actually after the time of, of, of Pollock... But there was still a tremendous energy, tremendous uh, excitement. And in fact, you know, at once when I got there, um, you know, you go around people's studios, you see a lot of things. I never did in, in France. I never did in Paris. 
um, partly because my French is so lousy, but also because um, there wasn't that openness. And it was very open, and I learnt a lot. Do, do you, I wonder how generational this experience is. Or do, you, do you ever get that feeling now, travelling to any part of the world, or do you get it in America? Not that it's at the beginning of something, but there is that creative energy or possibility. I mean, did, did London ever feel like that? I mean, historically, people felt that it was like that in the 90s, but I wonder what your experience was of those places. No, in London, it was actually... I mean, at St Martin's, we had a, a, a group of six or seven terrific young guys who, who, um, who were really pushing the envelope. And I haven't felt it here until this last year when I'm beginning to feel it's happening in London. And that's peculiar because I have um, young artists working for me and a couple of them have had remarkable shows which have you know, knocked me out. And, God, if they're doing this and they're talking to each other and criticising what each other's doing and in a, in a, in a forward-looking way, something's going to come out of this. So I do feel very hopeful about London. It is interesting that you know, the, the number of major artists who worked for more, you being the most illustrious, but Philip King, Richard Wentworth and others worked as assistants. And then there are, there are many artists who, who, young artists who've worked as assistants for you, John Gibbons, Jim Unsworth, there's a, many of them. Um, do you... Do you kind of adopt that mentoring role with them? Do you take time? Do you look at their drawings? Do you talk to them about their work in the way that Moore did to you? Is that something conscious that you try and do? No, no, it doesn't. And it, it just happens. I mean, this, uh, uh, the first thing I do when I go into the studio is say, anybody put the kettle on? So we have a cup of tea and we talk about all things under the sun, like, have you seen The Apprentice or, you know... What do you think of Downton Abbey? You know, it could Illusion be... shattered here, Tony, totally Oh, I'm so dear, yes. I'm sorry, I didn't realise how intellectual the audience was. <laughs> but, um, you know, absolutely, we talk about idiot things, and we also talk about art. And we talk about, um, you know, shows we've seen, and directions and things, and it so happens that I'm enjoying the conversations this year perhaps more than last year. It, it's just, it, it depends who happens to be there. Sometimes there's a lot of um, rapport, and sometimes there's not so much rapport. It depend, depends. But, I mean, with John Gibbons, say, you know, you know we, I go around shows with him sometimes and that sort of thing, you know. Um, and, and some of them are, you know, have stayed friends. We, we, we you know, we, we see each other's work and so on. Just finish the, the educational thing. You, you yourself, I mean, you mentioned St. Martin's School of Art. You're also a, 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 a very successful and distinguished teacher. Um, I quite like the fact that you've said you, you can't take credit for everything there. I mean, Gilbert and George, I would argue, are amongst your greatest creations. And, and charming, as I know you find them, you um, hold your hands up and abrogate responsibility. I mean, you, you may not now, but you certainly did a few years ago. But, um, no, what, I do what, now, I do now. You do now, good. Thank you. Um, but what was it about St. Martin's? I mean, you were pushing, uh, and uh, the generation of artists associated with you, Philip King, B B Bill Tucker, Tim Scott, David Annesley, who were working essentially in abstract assemblages and they were pushing at sculpt, the language of sculpture in, in one way. But how did the fact that, you know, the, the, the generation of artists included Bruce McLean, Barry Flanagan, Richard Long, Gilbert and George, how did that come about? Were they effectively trying to kill the father figure? Oh, absolutely, yes. They were, they were pushing against us, really. 
And I remember Barry Flanagan. I, I, there, was a, some, there was an evening um, experimental class, he used to call it. And, you know, to go out and sort of go and pick things up out of Covent Garden and, and make sculpture out of that or whatever. And I said, you know, make sculpture out of a loud bang, out of a loud noise. Make, a, make it a loud noise. Sculpture entitled A Loud Noise. So Barry Flanagan goes to the clay thing and he takes out a lump of clay and flings it at the wall and goes bang. He said, that's my loud noise. Well, I think that's surrealist. <laughs> is, or something, or data. Is, is, to my mind, that is an assault on sculpture. And, um, and I think that was where it started. That sort of attitude was where it started. So these first lot were doing all these things and having some success and so on, and the second lot were saying, none of that. You know, we're going to we're going to see it differently. Did you? Did I don't you... think Richard Long was quite quite in that in that um... more in a kind of romantic tradition. No, he was much more. Uh, yes, I think he's a pastoral artist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but were there violent conflicts? <laughs> but were there quite serious debates with people like Barry and Gilbert and George? And did you argue with them, or did you just facilitate and let them get on with what they wanted to do? I was delighted uh, at Gilbert and George. Um, when I went to, into the thing and they were having a tea party uh, serving baked beans, cold baked beans in ice cream cones. And there were uh, foreign students there who were really quite surprised at these English habits. Um, but, you know, it always amazed me. I mean, the whole thing. They, they told me recently, they said they, they, they admired you and still do um, for your achievements, but also your impeccable manners. And they said that you had said to them when they when they'd graduated, when they were leaving, you said, um, I wish you, um, you wish them well in the world. You said, I hope you don't have that much success as artists, but I have a terrible feeling you will. <laughs> exactly. I remember they're coming to see me, having a, having a drink in the pub. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, we're doing a property, we're doing a project on bacon. I said, oh, Francis Bacon. And they said, no bacon that you eat. <laughs> They were very funny. <laughs> but they were very impeccable manners. Um, I went to the Stedelijk, I think, all the... I went to the Rijksmuseum in, in, in Amsterdam to see a Rembrandt show, and then we went over to the Stedelijk, and there on the, on the stairs were Gilbert and George standing like two bronze figures. Hello, Gilbert. I couldn't resist it. Hello, Gilbert. Hello, George. Silence. But when I got home, a telephone call saying, I'm awfully sorry we couldn't acknowledge you, but we were sort of so busy, you see, we were so <laughs> They were living sculptures at that time. Living moment. sculptures, yes. It's a full-time occupation. <laughs> Their claim is, I mean, they've, they've had rather eloquent and comic discussions about the Tate. They say that Tate Britain is uh, an insult uh, that, uh, that they're modern artists and that British artists shouldn't be separated in that way. They say it's a form of cultural apartheid. They say it's also ungrammatical. If it's Tate Modern, it should be Tate British. If it's Tate Britain, it should be Tate Foreign. But anyway, that's, that's their um, line on it. But I wonder whether you feel more broadly that there is a kind of meaningful British tradition in sculpture 
or was one of the points about what happened in the 60s, of which you were the, the pivotal figure without doubt, I, that's my view and, and many others, whether that was the moment that British sculpture became less meaningful and that we, what was produced sculpturally in Britain, became part of a, an international trend anyway? I, I, think it, it, I think, I do think the English are sort of naturally uh, seem to be able to cope with sculpture in a way that Americans can't, for example. French can't. Um, Italians for a while could. I mean, I'm not talking about the old, old ones. You're talking about the 20th century. Yes, I'm talking about the 20th century. But um, I I don't think it's sort of isolated. It's not an English thing like St. Ives thing or something like that. It's it's broader than that. Because it's interesting, Brian Robertson, um, who was responsible for your... uh, first major show, I think, in London at the Whitechapel. And he wrote in the catalogue essay to the New Generation Sculpture Show in 65 that what was interesting about sculpture in Britain is that there wasn't a, a, a continuous native tradition. That You know, you could look back to the great yeah. uh, pre, uh, the kind of monolithic sculptures and Celtic sculpture and the, the kind of Gothic cathedrals. But actually, the, there wasn't this British tradition. And it was only something that immigrants really in, uh, could be held responsible for in the 20th century, Gary Brzezka and others. And then this momentum took, took, took place. Um, do you, I'm curious as to why you, we, we've heard why you went to America, but I don't know if anyone realizes, but you didn't go to Greece, I think, until no. you, till you were a mature artist and a mature man. Why did you wait so long to go to explore that world more directly? I was, I was nervous about it, very consciously. Um, <clears throat> when I was at the Royal Academy schools, the, it's in the basement, and all down the basement are these casts of Greek sculptures painted with brown shellac, and they're ghastly. They, they're, they're so dead. Oppressive. Yeah. Oppressive, and then all that Flaxman stuff, and I thought, oh, God, I, it's going to kill Greece for me if I go, so I won't go. And I wasn't ready to go until the late 80s, um, I mean the late date of the late 80s. Um, and I was absolutely knocked out. I was amazed um, to come across some of those temples, some temple up on a hill with that light, and, um, and to see the sculptures in the museums with that, in that presence, I, I, it, 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 was, it was wonderful. It was an eye-opener, that. And I was ready for it. I think I wouldn't have been ready earlier. Um, I always remember in Naxos going to a, 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 um, an orchard, and there was a big kouros, a great big 14-foot um, figure, lying down there, because it had obviously been, been carved and... They were taking it down the hill, and somebody said, look out, it's going, it's going, and no, stand back, and it went, and an arm broke, and they left it there for 2,000 years. That's very different from seeing a sculpture in the Met. You know, it's a different feel. And I got, I, I, I got, I got terribly, um, I mean, it's unsurpassed Greek. Greek sculpture. It's marvellous. Marvellous. The sculpture you've described could be... I mean, that's what Barry should have done, surely, when you said make a sculpture about a noise <laughs> rather than shut clay against the wall. Um, it, so 
one of the things that seems to be emerging then is that you need to have uh, the kind of confidence you need to have established your own vision, your own language of sculpture before you can deal with that. But you were deemed to have, have, have established certain rules for sculpture. I mean, you oh, I hope it. not. Well, well, I'll give you a chance to, to... This was always said, that you know, you'd knock sculpture literally and metaphorically off its pedestal. It was in, in our space. You'd made it more real. You dealt with an assembled or, or a, 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 and kind of three-dimensional collage language of sculpture. And that yours was irrefutably not figurative. But then later, you did start a conversation with, with figurative art again in the same or similar ways, you could say, to the way you started a conversation with Greek art or a conversation with architecture or a conversation with old master paintings. I'm using the linguistic metaphor. Does that still hold for you, what you called the language of sculpture initially? Do you now see, in the last two decades, your work in terms of dialogue, or does it still feel very similar to, in, in process and approach to what it always was? I'm sorry, I don't understand what you mean by well, in terms of dialogue. Well, the, for example, when you started making work that uh, I would call in dialogue with architecture, but there were oh, kind of three, oh, oh. But we, I think one critic called sculpitecture as a kind of amalgamation, but work that was architectonic in scale but referenced architecture, or the work that you made that, that for example, uh, was named after Rembrandt or after Rubens, I, w I would describe that as having a kind of conversation with old master work. I, I wonder whether that's something that, that, that that's how you saw that work, that was more explicitly engaged in other art forms or other specific works of art. Or was that always a springboard? And actually the process hasn't changed that much in the last 40 years. Well, it's, you know, you look everywhere. And I mean, you know, you go to exhibitions and you look at books and you say, God, look at the way he's done that. Look at that. And, and that gets in you somewhere. So there is some sort of a something like that going on. But maybe, you know, it's just being conscious. And I mean, when I worked in America, um, I'm told my work looked very American. I remember going around a show at the, at the Hayward with, with, um, with Tim Scott. And as he went round, he said, like that, don't like that, don't like that. All the don't like that's were ones I'd made in America. They must have had a different look. They had a look, something to do with the landscape, something to do with the way the houses sit on the, on the, on the ground, something to do with attitude. Um, very often I do look at, 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 um, at books and... Sometimes I'm very, uh, I, I'm very um, affected by an actual work or an attitude. Um, I don't know. It's very hard to say where your work comes from. I think. I mean, when I when I started making figurative things, it was quite by mistake. I mean, the, the, the stuff I made in the south of France. Um, which was ceramic. Which was ceramic stuff. I was uh, persuaded by um, Gilida, who was a friend, and said, you must go and work with this guy, Hans Spinner. And when I got there, um, Hans said to me, uh, well, let's start. What do you want me to do? And I said, I don't know. He said, you, everybody who comes here knows what they want to do. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, no, you start hands. So he picks up this 
what he calls a bread, which is a large loaf of clay, heavy, and lifts it and bangs it down, bangs it, and then he picks it up and throws it on the floor. Well, I'd never seen anybody be quite that physical with a piece of clay. I mean, I had worked in clay before, um, when I worked with Marty Huto in, 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 in Syracuse, New York, um, when we were talking about clay, I noticed she kept on doing this. And I realized that she was making sort of baskets. She was making clay in basket-type shapes. She saw clay as a container. Mm. Um, Hans saw it as something very there, a real thing. So I was simply following his sort of way, and once he threw it down on the floor, I said, okay, and now I know where I'm going, okay. So we started pushing things into it and putting your fingers in and, and, and putting bits of steel on it. But, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know... Kind of, when you're working with somebody like that, uh, you're taking a lot off each other. And to go in with a preconceived idea is simply no point in doing a workshop if it's like that. I think you've got to take a bit from the material and take a bit from the people who are working with you. Interesting that the, a lot of the ceramic pieces you still fragmented and assembled. And it's not as if all roots lead back to steel, but steel has remained consistently your material of choice from 1960 to the present. What is it about steel, then, that keeps leading you back to it? It's so easy. <laughs> I mean, you, you put it, and if it's not right, you cut it. Just as easy as that. And you put it, and you stick it. I mean, um, and I like the collage stuff, the collaging things. So I'm going to push that collage bit all over the places I can think of. And I realise, you know, my mother used to do sort of embroidery, but what she really liked doing was cutting out bits and making, making um, seat cushions or even little paintings sometimes. But they were, they were, they were delightful, but they, they, were, they were collage. And, and I think it must be, it's easy to collage. It is fun to try it sometime. <laughs> I love that idea that it, you, it, it, you say something is easy when actually it, a lot of people find it incredibly difficult. And it's an arduous, hard material. It's heavy. It's cumbersome to put together. Oh, well, I've got some lovely assistants who do all that. So I do the easy bit and they do the hard bit. You, you once, didn't you and Helen Frankenthaler once try and swap studios and you were trying, to, she wanted you to try and paint? Yes, well, she, she said, I'm coming to England. And I, and I had foolishly earlier on said, um, you know, you're welcome to come to my studio any time you like and make some sculpture. And she said, and is it okay if I come to the studio and make sculpture? I thought, oh my God. Um, but yes, and she, she made sculptures in my studio, and uh, I said, well, I'm working with Pat over here, and you work with Charlie over there. And um, she was extraordinary. I learned how she worked, which was awfully interesting. I mean, she was so certain. Her eye was so certain. And you would say, let's take that and put that there, and that was it. No changes, no nothing. She got it right the first time, or it was thrown away, but... 
right the first time. And, um, and then once I'd done that, uh, and she was with me for two or three weeks, um, and, and uh, Charlie fell in love with her. Uh, she sent Charlie a case of whiskey he'd never had before, and he rang her up in the middle of the night and said, I want to come and work with you, Helen. In, 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 so she uh, poached one of your she, assistants? No, she didn't. She couldn't get him. <laughs> she couldn't get him, and Charlie's wife wouldn't have allowed it, and uh, the whole thing. It was a, Charlie was quite an old chap by that time. Anyway. Anyway, so what, but what happened when you started to try and paint? Well, so then she said, now you've got to come paint in my studio. I don't want to, I said. Painting is what Sheila does. Sculpture is what I do. I don't want to. She said, no, I owe it to you. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. Oh, God. So she's, I went to the, her studio, and she said, um, this is your studio now. Wasn't that lovely of her? And she said, um, here's your assistant. Here is your rolls of canvas. Here are your paints. And um, I will... I will look in from time to time. I said, for God's sake, do look in. I don't know what I'm doing. And finally, we put out some some rolls on the floor, and I spilt some paint onto it. And then I wanted to move the spill. And you can't move spill. You've got to cut it out. So I started cutting it out and making collages. And they're very bad. And I think I've thrown most of them away. I it didn't work for me. I wasn't happy with the colour. But interesting that you just not reversed the type, but that was your language, that was your process. I suppose so, yes, yes. Well, when you make some... You've got a blue lump shape, and you want it over there, there's only one thing you do is to move it over there. You know? Absolutely. Um, through the 60s, this... Um, evolved form of abstraction was taking place in your work and, and then in the work of others. But around the mid to late 60s, you started making what are called table sculptures, the beginnings of which lead us to where we are here, Wolfson upstairs with double half. Um, what was the motivation behind those table sculptures? Was it mainly about scale? No, I felt that things were creeping along the floor too much and everybody else was beginning to do things creeping along the floor too much. And um, I thought there is another sort of sculpture, which is sculpture which is at table height or plinth height. And how do we cope with that? And uh, we cope with it by, by making something which appeals not... It still appeals to our scale and our size, but it appeals to the hand. And so it has to perhaps have a handle or something to show you like a cup has or a, or a pitcher or something. So it sort of feels graspable. And the other thing about a table is it has an edge which the floor doesn't have. So maybe it has to accentuate that edge. So the first table sculptures I made were all about going over the edge and having a handle. And then I, they, I went on from there. Which meant that I mean, literally, as well as metaphorically, they couldn't be put on the floor, so they didn't look like maquettes for larger works. They, they, were, had, they had a logic of their own. They were nothing to do with larger works. They were absolutely um, intrinsically themselves. They have to be themselves. Um, I don't like the idea of the model, the maquette. I think... In fact, I have had to do some work 
which has been too big to make in the studio, in which case I have to make it one-tenth the size or one-quarter the size. So I've got to imagine myself as sort of three inches high. I can't do that. You know, I, I, it's very... What I experience, I want it to be real. I don't want it to be... And I want to make sculpture more real, not more about models, pretenses. I want it to be real. Do you think that has been one of the fundamental problems with much monumental or outdoor or public sculpture, then? That it's not conceived in a real way? It's always conceived on a, oh, on a tiny I scale. I think, yes, yes. I mean, first of all, about the question of reality, I, I, I think that's why I moved away in, in, the, in 50 now 60 from figurative things to abstract things is that they were sort of pretense. They were pretense people, even though they were... And I wanted something which was as real as us two. Um, when, it, when you talk about city sculpture, big sculpture, outdoor sculpture, I think it's absolutely abysmal. Most of it is so bad and it's so big. And I, I mean, what a pity. And I think this has, is a different subject which should be taught alongside working with architects. I think there should be people working, making, I hate the word monumental, but making big sculptures um, and trying them full size and seeing how you have to think in order to make them in order to make them so they can be made. Uh, so you do have to make them with models. And maybe you have to think where they're going to be put. There's a hundred different things and how they're going to be put there. There's, it's a very, very big, complicated subject, um, making uh, city sculpture. And I think it should be taught. Um, you know, I've been working on this project for... Park Avenue. I do. I, was, which is I not didn't know gonna, whether you wanted to talk about it. I'm delighted you are. I was well, edging towards that. But. It's not going to come off, actually. Not this year, because I can't raise the funds. But I'm making... Uh, they had asked me to put a sculpture... I don't know whether you, you've seen um, in Park Avenue, the central reservation, which has a lot of shrubs. They've been put, they put some sculptures in there quite, quite often. Which look like urban furniture. And uh, they said to me, Charlie uh, Bergson said, will you, Bergman said, will you please um, give us a sculpture, you know, put a sculpture, one of your sculptures there. And I didn't think about it for 10 years or so. I said, oh, maybe one day. I couldn't find the right sculpture. And then I began thinking about it and thinking, what's it like in Park Avenue? And I realized the cars are going down it very fast and then they're stopping because the lights are all synchronized and they're coming up and so we really want a different sort of sculpture. We want a sculpture which is which can be grasped at 30 miles an hour not from a pedestrian point of view but it can also be because there are people on the sidewalks it can be seen from the from the buildings so we've got a lot of problems but it's going to be a different sort of thing and then I was, I, I, I was, I took my grandchildren to, to Rome and we went to the um, Sistine Chapel and I looked up and I said, this is a very long painting. It really, although it's got a lot of episodes, it's a very long painting. And maybe what I need to do is make a very long sculpture. So I started by making a sculpture a block long and it wasn't long enough. 
So this sculpture that I have finally made the models for, the maquettes for, the drawings for the whole thing, is three blocks long. So you, it's a very lo- it's a one-third of a mile long. How, how do you get round the, the idea of the static experience and the moving experience? It, do you have what we might call sculptural incidents at various moments in the, the work, or is it an entity, a unified entity? Well, there are, no, there are incidents, but it is, a, it is about going. It's about going. So, I mean... It's, 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 it's a sort of, it's got a lot of length in it. But it also has to enclose the, uh, the, 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 the greenery inside the central thing and so on. Um, so there are a few problems. But it was all ready to be made and, uh, and the company was very kindly going to make it and, and everything. But I, uh, I had to get it to New York and then I had to get um, these... Uh, it had to get from the docks to the site, and then it has to be erected over one weekend, and that means three teams of ten men each, and they're working uh, double time, and it's over a million pounds to put it into place. Well, that's not to do with the making of it, and I, I don't know how to get a million pounds, so anybody I've got any ideas? <laughs> I think we can start that campaign. <laughs> Um, but while you've been thinking about this and, and devising it, of course, you've been making other bodies of work. Um, this, obviously, is a single project, but do you still tend to work in series? Do you work at a number of different sculptures at, at, a, at a given moment? Well, yes, and actually, over this period when I was working so much on that, I was working on models and hating it. And I made some one-quarter-size models... And when I decided that this thing wasn't going to take off this year, I started cannibalizing the quarter-sized models. I'm having a lovely time making, you know, making sculptures out out of those, yes. Um, And, of course, at the same time, I'm making other things too. Uh, Yes, I like to have quite a lot going at the same time. And, uh, you know, I, I go from one to the other, really. So one informs another at various stages? Up to a point. Up to a point. Um, what about finish? When do you know when a work's finished? It's the $64 million question. You How do you know? Ask me that. I know, but you always give me different answers. No, uh, the answer to that one, Larry Poon said it. He said, he said, when you know the painting's finished, he said, when it says yes to me. Um, it tells you. It tells you when it's finished. So do you ever see work that you've made tonight as we walk down? Do you ever look at a work and think, oh, yes, I wish I could have that back. I'd just like to do this, or maybe this suggests no, it. I, I take it away. I don't want to see it. It's done. It's done. The making of it was the fun. You know? Um, what do you remember about the making of that work? I mean, do you remember the exact work, or do you remember part of a series? No, I remember the series. I remember the series. Um, and I don't remember much, because I don't look back. I look forward. I don't, I, you know, um, I feel that my productive years are to come absolutely so do I um, Good. but um, do you nonetheless as, as, as when you reach a certain status in fact this has happened all the way through your career from the late 60s you've had retrospectives we did a modern art did a big show with you the, the Hayward you were the first um, uh, living artist to show at the Hayward um, in the late 60s when it opened you know the Tate did a big retrospective not so long ago you're looking at one potentially in Venice soon 
these must be, whether you like it or not, events that make you look back as well. Do you learn from your past, or are you, are you going to stubbornly declare still that, you just, that that's done and you can only look forward? Because you, they must make you consider what you've done, even if you're just there for the installation or thinking about how that will be presented. I don't think that you do learn in that way from the results. I don't want to look at results. I want to look at problems and, and the excitement of making it and getting it right. Um, it's like, I mean, you're having a great time with George, your son. Uh, he's an infant. It won't be such fun when he's left the nest. I mean, it, it, it's not so interesting. He's gone his track and you're on your track then. So it's downhill from that No, point. it's not downhill, but it's a different thing. I'm just looking yeah. at a very gloomy prospect. <laughs> You've got a year or two to wait. <laughs> okay, but, but so then finally, before I throw it to the floor, do, so your relationship with sculptures that you've made, well, let's not take the, the children one too far, but nonetheless, they are things that you've nurtured, created or whatever, but then they have to make their own way in the world. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, Mike Freed said something or, or wrote, told somebody, he said, I go and look at a lot of sculptures with Tony and if I love something and think it's wonderful, he doesn't want to look at it anymore. It's the problems he wants to look at. And that is so. I mean, you know, you look at it and you say, something's wrong, where is it? Uh, is it that right-hand side? Maybe let's try something there. That's interesting, that's fun, that's creative, that's making art. Judging is not making art. I think that judgment of works, which is something I really can't do, um, my own and not much of other people's a bit. I mean, I know what I like, but I mean, I don't really want to be in that business. That's, that's a different thing. I want to make it, and the making is, 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 is what it's all about. Have you ever had one of those kind of blocks or, or periods of crisis when you've thought, I can't do this anymore, or I, I need to stop doing it? No, I don't think I've actually had that. But when I look back, <clears throat> I did think of changing my studio completely and sort of making it more of a teaching place, having exhibitions there, having um, a sort of triangle workshop place where artists could ha show their work and they could, there could be a, a library and they could um, have cups of tea or drinks there. And Because I do feel, you know, the old ICA in the very old days was a place where artists could meet and could throw ideas around and so on, and we're missing it that now in, in England. And I, when I look back on the time that I was thinking of doing that, I think I must have been depressed. I think I must have really felt that, that, that I didn't have any more art in me. Um, but then I got a second wind. So, I mean, I, I think you've got to play into your strengths, not your weaknesses, and play into the fact that really I'm a sculptor, not an organiser, or not a, you know... Not a teacher. Pretty good teacher. Let's throw it to the floor, because we've got about ten minutes left, and uh, I don't want to hog you for the entire evening. Other questions that people would like to ask um, on the floor? Yeah. I think there's a mic coming, sorry, that uh, you could shout. Why there has been so, and there is still, so little sculpture in wood, 
And secondly, can you please say a few words about Naum Gabo? Could I ask you, do you mean why has Tony made so few sculptures in wood, no, or just in general? On the whole, by comparison, there is very little sculpture in wood. Wood is all around us. Have you seen the sculptures of Tillman Reimenschneider? Yes. They're, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. All those lime wood sculptors in Germany were just great. And, I mean, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't think you can say that wood's an impoverished material. Um, maybe nobody's quite learned how to use it nowadays. Maybe people are a bit too taken by surface and grain. Um, I can't say anything about, about Garbo. Um, I think he's a very, he was a very serious sculptor. I find them not really to my taste. I find them a bit cold. They're not... Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't strike my heart. But that's personal. Gentlemen, there. Um, so I first saw a, a sculpture of yours when I was about 20. And I've been um, encountering your sculptures over the last 30, 35 years. And I immediately know that they're by you. Um, I was in the Tate in Liverpool recently and I saw some of your fantastic table sculptures. I was in the Senate building one of the Senate buildings in America. I think there's a gigantic piece by you. And that, that, is there, um, is there uh, a, a, do you, you recognize a theme across your life? Is it just that I'm meeting your character imbued in each sculpture? Is there, is there an explanation why, and I'm sure many people in this room know instantly that's a caro. Well, I'm surprised that you're saying it, and really rather pleased in a way, because I never felt I made signature sculpture. I mean, I think you can, you can always tell a Rothko, you can see Rothko, because Rothko had a sort of signature style, um, and I've never had that, and I've pushed it wherever I've gone, uh, where, wherever it led me. And I don't really want to... Um, I remember Charles Wheeler, when I was a student, saying to me, you want to look at Greek sculpture, it can, it can t give you a style. I don't want to have a style. Um, I want to do what I want to do and break the rules. That's why when he said there were rules, I don't want there to be rules. Maybe you don't have a style, maybe you have a sensibility, but I know what you mean, but it's very difficult to articulate that. When did you first feel that you had found your own voice? When did you feel that you were producing work that felt real, to use the term that you said earlier? I think when I made my first abstract sculptures. So the work before, women take, women's waking up and, and women taking off a shirt and so on, they, they, they felt no, illustrative and unreal? No, they felt all right. They felt all right at the time, you know. They were where I could be at that time. Um, and I'm not ashamed of them. It's just that I don't... Um, I don't think they were leading me anywhere. And I do want things to lead me somewhere, even now, you know. Um, so I'm trying some things now which are probably, possibly, 
can lead somewhere and possibly not sort of working using glass, for example. Um, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know. Uh, and I think maybe I've come to the end of terracotta. I don't know. But, you know, I don't really want to think that far ahead. And wood, maybe. Wood's pretty difficult. <laughs> Um, you've said in the past that um, you're not concerned with site specificity. Um, you've said in the past that you're not concerned with site specificity, but um, surely your chapel works have a certain specificity. Would you say that you're a spiritual person or that that has any significance? I'm not quite getting So it. which works have a site specificity? The, the ones in the chapel, so in, in Cambridge France. and in France also. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think the ones in, said in Cambridge. Did you say Cambridge? No, he's talking about the ones in the chapel. Yeah, no, she also said Cambridge. I think the Cambridge one was produced no, was separately just... and put in the chapel. Yes. But, the, but the chapel in France, in northern France, near Calais, I mean, I think it's a very good point. They are, in a sense, site They specific. are site specific. And of course, any very big ones like the one I'm talking about at, at Park Avenue, um, they would be site specific. Um, yes, I made a full-size mock-up in my studio of the niches um, for the chapel and then made the sculptures to fit those niches and then the sculptures were taken to, to Beaubourg and put in their places. Uh, they, they was very site-specific, those, those ones. Um, what was the difference then, working in that way, fundamentally, what were the differences, and working in, in, in a more liberated or unconstrained way in the studio where context is not on your mind? I tried to make it as free as I could, but I was within a frame in those cases. Um, but interestingly, trying to break out of the frame, because the niches, everything yes, cascades yes, out yes, and yes. bursts out. And I was breaking... I mean, my first thing when I got, I saw the place with the niches, I thought, oh, I've got to stick to this. And I did stick to it, and then I got one that broke out a bit. I said, now I'm free, I can do what I like. So it's a great question, so, but is it the, then the fact that site if you've said you don't, you're not interested in site specificity, that's a rule you've put for yourself, so you've got to break it by definition as you want to be a rule breaker? I had a thought like that. <laughs> well, that was your get-out clause, you didn't take it, but that's the no. question there. Um, yeah, um, I, wa I was wondering about... Um, your, your work is... is uh, I, I was wondering what, how... Um, Clement Greenberg and that sort of the, the mo modernist theories of that time sort of work, how it informed your work or how it um, maybe changed your work or maybe Oh not. yes, Clem was a big influence um, when I first went and I was thinking of changing and, and, and Clem said if you want to change your work, change your habits, which was a good idea. Uh, but there was no, there was no theory. Uh, of course, I mean, yes, we know what you know. Clem did have some points of view, but where he was great was in the studio. And you'd come into the studio, and he would not look. You put a sculpture up, say, then he'd turn and look at it, and would say something and. He didn't want to talk, he didn't like to hear the artists talk. He didn't want to hear their theories and why they did it. And actually, it is very putting off 
when you go to somebody's studio and they start telling you what the sculpture's about and why they did it this way. And in the end, you can't see the sculpture because they're, they're taking up all your thinking time. So Tim, in the studio, was like an angel. He would go in and look at your work, and we'd look after one work after another, and um, he would say, I think you don't need that bit on the right. You're overcrowding it. And I would put a question mark on that, in, you know, a chalk mark on it. And I'd go back afterwards, and very often, more times than not, he was right. Um, so he had a great eye. Um, <clears throat> he was an extraordinary man. Um, very difficult, very lovable, and awful, both, <laughs> both, both. And he would really, he would really uh, lamb into his friends. Yeah. In some ways, that he's the exception. But do you is that do you have a, a sense that there are people who have that facility now, or, or are there critics or, or historians or curators with you, whom you have a kind of similar sympathetic dialogue or combative oh, dialogue? Oh yes, yes. But they're none of them English because the English don't see criticism as something you do in the studio. It's something you do in the Sunday Times, and I I think that's boring as hell. I don't want to look at old at work that's been done. I want somebody to talk to. Um, I can talk to Michael Freed. I have a wonderful time with him. I can talk to Karen Wilkin. I used to be able to talk to Terry Fenton, but he's gone to live in Saskatoon. I mean, uh, yes, there are people who are great in the studio. I mean, Sheila's like that. I, what do you think, you know? Well, it's a bit empty there. Isn't that too busy, you know? Um, I'm stuck, completely stuck with that. Well, let's try it another way up. I mean, you know, people will give you all sorts of possible clues. Um, and, and I asked Pat, too, who works with me, you know, uh, what do you think, Pat? And he said, it's a, bit, it's a bit thin, can we, you know, okay, you've got an idea? He said, well, there was a bit of steel out there, it might be worth trying. Let's try it. Anything anybody suggests, try it, try it. You know, I, when I worked in, in Toronto in a steel yard, um, and I said, there was this crane driver. He'd never seen a sculpture in his life. Um, oh, God, I'm stuck. Red, his name was Red. What shall I do? He said, shall we turn it on its side? I couldn't turn three tons on its side, but he knew about turning things on their side with three tons. Try it. Then we took off from there. I mean, that's, that's, I think, I don't think that sculpture, I don't think that most art is a solitary thing, totally solitary. Um, I think it's very important that T.S. Eliot was able to talk to Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound was saying, how about trying that, you know? And you're doing it with yourself all the time. I remember there's a painting of Olga, by Matisse, where he's got these lines like that. It's a terrific picture. And I can see why he did those lines. One evening when he was tired, and his wife said, come and have a drink. He said, just a minute. I've got to do this tomorrow. I've got to do that and that. So he put them on. Next day, wait, down there. 
it's perfect. It's just what I want every day. <laughs> it's so much. You've got you've got to allow the art to speak to you. You've got to allow other people to speak to you. Mind you, there are some people who are totally critical and not helpful. And there are some people who are um, ignorant and they don't want to get in touch with the art. But the people who really want to get inside your art and help are marvellous. They're, 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 they're a terrific bonus. Have you ever felt constrained by um, expectation? You know, that as you become a successful artist, people have very strong expectations about what you're going to do. And the gentleman over there said that, you know, he can recognise a caro. And I think instinctively we know what he means. But in a sense, that could be constraining, that you have to produce things that have a certain sensibility or a certain level. Now, you, you know, you say you're a no. rule breaker and so on, but you've never... I know artists, I know very successful artists, who do confess, maybe more privately, but to, that sometimes with success comes a kind of constraint because there, are, there is a level of expectation that means that you can't be seen publicly to fail. Don't think about it. Don't, I, don't, I don't think about it. I don't really think about those sort of things because success is so ephemeral and I'm me. I'm not an icon. I just gotta, I've got to live my life. I've got to do what I want. And, and my doctor said to me, at your age, you can do what you want. What a great thing to say. He also said, stay away from doctors. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just take one more question. That's okay. yeah. um, I don't know if you've had any personal experiences where you could connect um, sculpture to art therapy, whether it is somatic pains or mental anxieties, which can be relieved by uh, working as, uh, 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 as you have done. Not specifically, but I, I am quite sure. I mean, David Smith wrote somewhere, there's no, there's no way of getting rid of your devils better than being in the studio. And I think, you know, you can't, you can't think of anything except the work in hand when you're working. You can't think, oh, I'm in pain or my life's miserable. or Get on with it and get on with that sculpture and make it right. And that is, that's so therapeutic. Um, I think art, I think for people who are ill, art can be a good therapy. But I've never seen it that way round. I see in the sense it's a byproduct of, of this act of making. On which redemptive and healing note, uh, I think we should end. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Tony, but tonight well, was a particular one. Thank thanks you. a lot anyway. Now, when I go upstairs and look at uh, the sculpture in the marble hall, I'm always going to think first of the sentence, things were creeping along the floor too much. And now I shall understand what it's doing and why it's there. And I shall also think about the description that you gave um, of the reasons for the making uh, of that piece, uh, to make something that appeals to our scale, to make something with a hand that feels graspable, and to make something with an edge which the floor doesn't have. 
Um, and I have been thinking about that description throughout this conversation, which has been um, masterminded with such impeccable generosity and intelligence uh, and, and um, sensitivity by, by Tim. It seemed to me that this conversation has been wonderfully appealing and accessible uh, with a hand uh, that reaches out to us and yet with a distinct edge. Uh, and above all, uh, I, I do think this experience has been, as you have said about your work and what you want your work to be, very real. Uh, we are enormously grateful to you for coming here and uh, it's been a wonderful uh, evening for us. Thank you both very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.